0: Hello! Bienvenidos Bienvenidos a Entredos, a podcast about raising bilingual children. I do like to read with my mama. I'm Paula. And I'm Monica. Welcome to Entredos, a podcast about raising bilingual children. As parents of bilingual children, you've likely heard about the bilingual advantage. This idea that people who have two or more languages develop cognitive advantages particularly within the realm of executive function, which is responsible for things like attention and task switching. Research to date has yielded conflicting results. And according to some researchers, the debate over whether there's a bilingual advantage or not has reached a stalemate.
1: In this episode, we talked to Dr. Anthony Dick, an associate professor of developmental science and cognitive neuroscience at Florida International University. He published a study in May that found no evidence of advantages in executive function in bilingual children. We wanted to learn more about his study and the state of the research into the cognitive advantages of bilingualism.
2: Yeah, so the the study that we did, well basically what we found we were investigating um whether there's this bilingual advantage to executive function, right? So this is the the idea that um that children and adults who speak more than one language sort of gain an advantage outside of just the ability to speak uh, a second language or a third language if they're if they're multilingual. Um and that is in the area of executive function, which is sort of the ability to to control your behaviors, to shift attention, um, to stop yourself from doing something and then then um, do something different. Um, and people differ in terms of those abilities. Um, and the, there's a lot of work in the past couple of decades that has suggested that if you speak a second language, uh, that you sort of get better at doing things just in general, in terms of executive function. Um, so, that's what uh that's what we were investigating with this study but it's it's part of a broader study of many different um sites across the united states part of this adolescent brain and cognitive development study that is ongoing and uh started researching and doing doing research on nine to eleven year olds in 2015 and then um it's continuing on for another five years uh, going on and we're following all these kids longitudinally and Florida International University is the Miami, you know, Miami uh, site in this this national um, study across the United States.
0: And and you know, your study really caught our attention because when we started working on this show last year, we noticed that there were discrepancies in sort of the concept of the bilingual advantage um, in the yeah. research in that field, and sort of the the. And the popular narratives that surround that, that concept, right? For instance, when you look at media coverage of bilingualism, you'll see claims that range from, you know, these sort of amazing cognitive advantages to like children that are bilingual have superpowers. So th- this area of bilingualism research feels like it has gone from an era where we had to tackle... The sort of perceived disadvantages, like AKA like confusion, for instance, um, of yeah. bilingualism, to now essentially sort of figuring out what the advantages are, if there are any, in at least in the cognitive um, um, aspects of it, right? So yeah. So why do you think this idea of sort of the bilingual advantage has become like a, a widely held and accepted view?
2: Well, I think. The way you framed it is great because I, I think you do have to go back in time to you know a couple of decades ago where parents uh, of bilingual or you know parents were con- sort of concerned about how they should raise their children in terms of whether they should focus on one language or or whether it's okay to to try and um, learn two languages at the same time and the early thoughts were that like you mentioned that it would be confusing and that it would actually impair language development and. It's great that the research has basically suggested that's not the case. That it's it's fine to to uh, have your children learn more than one language as they're growing up, and this is actually you know the default in a lot of different countries in the world. Um, The United States is sort of unique in that this is even an issue in in Europe and you know other parts of the the world. It's standard to learn more than one language. Um, So I think it's important to point out that parents should not be concerned that their child is learning more than one language and the the benefits just in, in general of learning a second language are pretty uh, significant. So parents should continue to try and uh, teach their children the second language. Um, I'm not uh, bilingual myself, but I, my son who is um, just turned 11 this week, he's going through a bilingual Spanish and English program here in, in Miami. Uh, so I totally support that. So I think it's important first off to set out, set out that there aren't the problems that people used to think that you would be confusing kids when they're they're learning a second language. But then there was this attempt to show maybe there are additional benefits. So there was sort of a, a pushover in the other direction. And the early research was really um, compelling. So the first couple of decades of that, there was the suggestion that uh, kids who are learning a second language do get this advantage in, in sort of their ability to shift attention and and perform multiple tasks and things like that. And the, the early research was uh, really quite good, and everybody got very excited about it. The, the issue with it is that a lot of it was conducted in small samples. Um, so in about 2015, or maybe a little bit before, there were people who were doing some, some research trying to, what you call, replicate and extend those findings. So you try to replicate the early finding and then extend it to some, something new in the, in the study you're doing and they were finding they were having trouble replicating the early findings. So, a couple of researchers did what's called a meta-analysis where they went and looked at all of the different studies in the literature to see if across all these different studies at different sites with different researchers was there an effect that was uh continually showing up, which would indicate there's something real um going on. And the meta-analysis didn't find a lot of compelling evidence for that. And then there was an, another one done um Last year on adults, so the initial analysis focused on, on children, the one last year on adults also didn't find that, that you see these effects consistently across studies. Uh, so what we wanted to do is is take advantage of that and sort of jump off from that point and say, well, what if we look at it in a very large sample? Would we find something? And we also didn't, didn't find this advantage. Um, we did replicate one finding which uh, parents should be sort of aware of but not overly concerned about, which is that if you learn two languages, you're basically trying to learn two vocabularies at the same time, and you only have a certain number of hours in the day to do that. So you may end up uh, with a reduced English vocabulary here in the United States to some degree, but your total vocabulary across the two languages doesn't really suffer, and that replicates uh, some prior findings. Um,
1: In these studies, do you think some of the Discrepancies, perhaps, or the reasons that some of these findings can't uh, be replicated, are there certain variables that may also impact those findings? Like, for example, you know, socioeconomic status or education levels is there some of that? like, Or bilingualism in general, because there's different levels of bilingualism, right? And so I'm wondering, does that impact or does that have something to do with the discrepancy among studies?
2: Yeah, definitely. So there's a lot of uh, potential reasons for it. So one of them is that people measure bilingualism in, in slightly different ways. And it's actually quite difficult to to measure it accurately, so you're both bilingual. I'm assuming. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> so, <laughs> so, how how would you describe um, in your own life how how bilingual are you? Would you say very bilingual? Or are you very fluent in uh, Spanish? Is your second your first or second language? I guess.
0: We were just talking about this yesterday, right, Paula? About yes. how it, it has gone up and down. Um, we both grew up with Spanish as our as our dominant language, right? Yeah. So English was second. And but but after being in this country for over two decades, right? Both of us, you yes. know, our bilingual, our Spanish sort of like proficiency has sort of gone up and down because of yeah. that. Professionally we use English. Um, even like there have been periods in, 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 my life where I've mostly used English for everything. Um, my husband speaks English. So after, so, and now that our daughters, <laughs> you know, are here and we're trying to get them to be bilingual, we are using Spanish way more. So it sort of, it comes in waves.
2: Right. And you know, it's, it's like the, the idea of the, of the muscle, if you exercise it, it, it gets stronger. And the same thing right. happens with these cognitive domains. Um, but you're, you're pinpointing like, sort of the complexity of what is, uh, bilingualism. And, you know, if you learn the two languages simultaneously from birth, like your, your daughters are probably doing, that's going to be a different kind of bilingual experience than if you, let's say you move to the United States when you're six or seven and you only start learning English once you end up in the school system. That's a, that's what you would call a sequential bilingual. And those different kinds of bilinguals are definitely, um, Research has shown there's sort of different kinds of, of a bilingual, bilingualism. And then you have this, this uh, added complexity that you're sort of describing, which is it really depends on the person's individual experiences. So even though you have that complexity, though, you can, there's definitely a difference between a person who only speaks one language in terms of their you know, level of uh, fluency um, and one who speaks two languages. Like my fluency in Spanish is pretty poor. So, I wouldn't argue that I'm very bilingual, um, but if you have fluency, you can carry on a conversation and comprehend the languages in t- in both languages, that would be some degree of bilingualism. It's the sort of, more of the the issue of degree that you get into when you start talking about how that might affect other domains, and that's certainly an important issue um, The second thing you mentioned with socioeconomic status, this will definitely affect. Uh, cognitive development in a number of domains. And it's sort of a a complicated uh, relationship with with the language and also with the executive function outcomes. And so socioeconomic status will definitely predict a number of different outcomes like academic success, uh, executive function. Um, So it has to be taken into account. And one of the arguments is that if bilingualism allows you to sort of have this Executive function advantage, it may be a little bit of a protective effect on the negative impacts of lower socioeconomic status. so we looked at that in our study it isn't reported in the in the paper, but we didn't find any evidence for that, but um, that has been found in other studies that the bilingual advantage is especially prominent in kids who come from low uh, income backgrounds so it 's an important um, important caveat to these things. I mean, it's, it is, it is complicated to the, to study this stuff.
0: And, and do you think, and you mentioned, um, this, is it ABCD study that you, yeah. you that, that you use the data from this massive, massive national study, um, yep. that has sort of given you access to, um, these massive sample sizes, right?
2: Yeah. The, I think the study is really a game changer. I think, um, it's funded by the National Institutes of Health and the National Institute on Drug Abuse. And they put a lot of money behind it and it, it was a bit of a risk, but I think it's turning out to be um, an, just an excellent investment of, of taxpayer money because what it does is, is it allows people, it's a public data set. So anyone can go and um, try to get access to these data, even if you're outside of the science area. Um, that means that, it's all open. It has this large sample size. So over 11,000, 11,830 kids, I think is what the, somewhere around that in the final number for the, for the first series of visits. And that's an unprecedented sample size for uh, studies of, of child development with the number of um, measures that we collected. So this study that we reported here is only taking advantage of the behavioral measures we collected, so their intelligence tests and things like that. But the study also did a bunch of um, neural imaging measures, uh, structural and functional imaging in an MRI scanner on all of these kids. And so that is going to allow us to understand how brain development um, is impacted by experience. And we also have a lot of genetic data from saliva samples on the same children and background interviews of their parents and and the children uh to try and understand what sort of experiential um sorts of uh uh, things are going to impact brain development and behavioral development so the study itself is a is a huge deal and the sample size makes it so that you can really get at some of these very subtle differences because in smaller sample studies you often don't have enough representation of different levels of complexity but with the larger sample, you do have that representation, and you can start to interrogate it more carefully.
1: Could you tell us about your study's findings? Because we've, I don't think we've yeah. <laughs> we've discussed it. <laughs> That's important. Yeah. So tell us what you found um, about executive function in bilinguals.
2: Yeah. So we did. We looked at uh, the first data release, which had forty five hundred um, kids in it. They were nine to ten year, uh, years old when they were tested. And we measured three different executive function measures, which sort of um, measure attention. One of them measured attention. One of them measures what you call task switching. So the ability to sort of shift between different tasks um, in an easy way. And then uh, we also looked at uh, conflict resolution. So resolving conflict between two potential um, decisions. So those are sort of the executive function measures. We also measured their English vocabulary we didn't measure their vocabulary in other language because over 40 languages were represented in the, in the sample. The majority of them were Spanish speaking, but um, it was still a very high representation of other languages. So we focused on the English vocabulary because all of them were English speaking children and uh, about um, 1600 of them were also um, speaking another language and the great thing about this sample is is because it's so large there was a very good representation of uh race and ethnicities that are representative of the of the general population of the United States there was a good representation of socioeconomic status um so we get a lot of studies suffer from the problem that they they sort of oversample you know like middle income households because those people are tend to have the means and ability to to go and participate in research studies but there was a lot of effort made to try and sample across a range of socioeconomic um, levels so that made it so that we could uh look at the socioeconomic status effects Um, and then a lot of the the people the children in the study along with their parents some of them born outside the united states and uh had we had a large representation of immigrant backgrounds so we can look at those things. So we we collected those data. We measured bilingual status just by self-report so that the child said uh, whether they were could speak a second language or not. But then we also wanted to get a little bit more um, into what that meant. So we we also asked them uh, how often were they speaking the other language with with friends and family. And so that allowed us to look at sort of a, it's a sort of a proxy measure of bilingualism or a little bit crude. So it would have been preferable to have a better measure, I think. But it it turns out to replicate the uh, the vocabulary finding from previous research. So I'm not as concerned about it. I think it, it gets at the idea of bilingualism pretty well. Um, but generally, we looked at whether if you spoke uh, another language quite often with friends and family, did that predict higher executive function? Um, meaning if you were sort of a person who was fluent in two languages, using one, using it in the school system, probably, and the other with, with uh, family and friends, um, that should predict, according to the literature that was out there, it should predict better executive function. And we didn't find that across the three tasks. Um, in fact, we did a little bit of an analysis which looked at whether the finding on executive function looked any different from random data, and we found it did not. But the finding for the vocabulary difference did look different from random data. So so that replicated, a, and I want to emphasize a very slight disadvantage for English vocabulary, not overall vocabulary. We, didn't, we weren't able to measure that, but for English vocabulary. Uh, and I mentioned the reason being that If you're trying to learn two vocabularies, you're sort of splitting your time across the two vocabularies, so you may end up with a slight disadvantage um, for English vocabulary if you if you're learning a second language, although, in my opinion, the benefits far outweigh those disadvantages. So that's generally what we found is that we couldn't we couldn't replicate the executive function advantage finding, but we did replicate the, the slight disadvantage for English vocabulary.
0: Yeah, and, and and one thing we like to tell our listeners is that language is a continuum. And in many ways, so is the developing research that surrounds it. We have seen an explosion of this bilingual and multilingual brain development research happen in the past decade. And it seems that we have yet to reach a consensus about these very big, important questions.
2: Well, I, I think... Uh you make a re- a great point about science. Um, scientists love to argue with each other. <laughs> so <laughs> there's, a, <laughs> there's at least, there's a good bit of people on the other side who, who would look at this study and say, okay, well, that's one study. Um, and it, you know, it didn't measure bilingualism as well, bilingualism as well as we would have liked. And some people have, have said, uh, well, you only looked at three executive function tasks, you'd probably find it in other stuff. So scientists like to poke holes in other studies. And they're, they're right. There's no one study that is going to decide whether something is or is not true. And if you study, if you identify more people who are bilingual and you study larger samples, that should give you a closer to a correct answer about whether there's a something about the population of bilinguals uh, that's different but obviously it matters um, how you measure things. So it's important to get good measurements as well. And this study that we did is part of a larger study that was not specifically designed to look at bilingual advantages. Um, so we're sort of pulling the data out that that we could use to address the problem. But I think if uh, if you really wanted to know if this was um, something that's a real effect or not, I think a very large study with a lot of different measures that Tries to really um, get at and uh, measure bilingualism really well and uses a lot of different executive function measures that would get at the problem um, and probably bring a lot of people on board who who maybe, you know, if they found there was a bilingual advantage, I would believe there was if it was a very high, well controlled large sample study, if they didn't find it, I would, I would be inclined to believe that. Um, So I think you have to have compelling evidence. And part of the compelling evidence is that you need to do large sample studies. And this is why I think the ABCD study is such a game changer, because it was only with this, you know, 21 different universities across the United States getting together in a big consortium to try and collect all these data at the same time. And it has been really a, a sort of a Herculean effort because um, FIU, Florida International University, is one of the... Uh, The sites in the study, I get to see firsthand how complicated it is to try and collect these data. But those kinds of studies going forward, that kind of investment is going to really change how we understand um, child development, I think.
0: Thank you to Dr. Anthony Dick for talking with us about his study. It sounds like the research and debate over whether there is a bilingual advantage may continue on and we'll be following along closely. You can read more about his study and the bilingual advantage debate in the show notes.
1: We haven't asked in some time, but please, if you like what we do, take a moment to rate and review our podcast. We would be so grateful.
0: Yes, very grateful. And as always, head over to Entre Dos Podcasts on Facebook, Instagram, or Twitter to continue the conversation.